Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. In addition to contributing to our communities and clients as architects, we are CEOs and COOs. We're bookkeepers and CFOs. We're the administrative team and the HR department. And we need to be marketing experts as well as productive salespeople. And that's just here at work as a small firm architect. At home, we're moms and dads, we're husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. We have so many roles and so many responsibilities as a small firm architect. And we haven't even begun to talk about what we need. How do we find the time to build a better you? Do you know that feeling? Are you a little bit overwhelmed? Are you wondering how it's physically, mentally, and spiritually possible to even begin to find success as an architect? I know how you might feel, because I'm a small firm architect too. I'm running three businesses, and I'm considering starting two more. Don't tell anybody. I'm proud to say that I'm a pretty good husband and a dad to three happy, healthy kids. I'd say that I'm pretty successful with my firm and my family, but this hasn't always been the case. In this profession of architecture, success is not easy. But it is relatively simple. It takes planning, consistent action, and lots of painful discipline. To succeed as a small firm architect, it takes intentional development of an integrated life. During the first trimester, we brought you the Entree Architect Profit Workshop. And during trimester two, we brought you the Build Your Brand Workshop. Well, on October 1st, we will be launching our third interactive workshop of 2019. It's called The Integrated Life, a planning and productivity workshop for small firm architects. It's a five-week program where I will work with you directly, helping you to develop a powerful plan for your personal and your business success, as well as an effective productivity system that will help you execute your plan with success in 2020. 
I hope you'll join me. Learn more at entrearchitect.com slash life. That's entrearchitect.com slash life, L-I-F-E. If you want to succeed in 2020, you need to start preparing today. You need to prepare for that success right now. Learn more and register at entrearchitect.com slash life. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Do you suffer from perfectionist paralysis? This is episode 288, and this week I'm with author and creative instigator, Melissa Dinwiddie, and she shares her 10 guideposts to a culture of creativity. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM specifications, and so much more at RCAT.com, FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure, spend less time on accounting, and more time doing the work you love. And Gusto, easy online payroll, benefits, and HR built for the modern small business. Melissa Dinwiddie, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you for having me, Mark. It's great to be here. This is going to be fun. <laughs> this, we're, 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 I'm talking to somebody who is a, a creative person who understands business and understands all the things that we do here at Entree Architect. So, um, but you're also a, a creative person and, and uh, wants to teach the world how to play, to get back uh, to their creative. creative that's world. true. Yes, indeed. So I'm excited about this conversation. Let me introduce you. Melissa Dinwiddie has channeled a background as a professional artist and a calligrapher into a consultancy that helps companies gain clarity and make sense of complex situations by making ideas visible. With an eclectic background, she's a Silicon Valley native, a Juilliard-trained dancer, and has a master's in cultural studies. She brings a creative outsider's perspective to the corporate setting. Melissa's front-of-room experience ranges from traveling the country teaching calligraphy to speaking on stages from Connecticut to California to performing as a singer for audiences as big as 6,500 people to presenting a professional at professional conferences conferences internationally. And she also currently performs improv in the San Francisco Bay Area. So if you're over there, go find her. Uh, Melissa is the author of The Creative Sandbox Way, Your Path to a Full Color Life. And she hosts a podcast called The Creative Sandbox Way, which is currently on hiatus, but you can go check it out on, on uh, iTunes and, and podcast app and all the apps. It's, you can search for it and you'll find it. Um, so mm -hmm. Melissa, I shared a little bit about you in that intro, but I want to learn more about you. I want to go to your origin story. I want you to go back to where you discovered your passion for what you do today and what inspired you to keep doing that and share that story, the, the journey from that point forward to today uh, on what you're doing at this moment. Okay, how long do you have? <laughs> I, I have as long as you want to give us. <laughs> okay, well, 
I have to kind of go back to when I was really little, because when I was really little, I was a super creative being, as we all are. We are all born fully creative. We emerge from the womb, all of us fully creative beings. And then something happens to most of us. We get kind of beaten down. And I think it happens in the school system for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. It certainly did for me around first grade. I remember looking at other kids art and starting to realize, oh, you know, Aaron Brody can draw these really cool race cars that look really real, at least for, you know, for a first grader, they look really real. <laughs> right. I had no interest in drawing realistic race cars that held no interest for me. But I remember thinking, I can't draw that well, like he's better than I am. So the comparison trap gremlin started to sink their claws into me pretty early. And then by fourth grade, I remember we had this uh, scholastic book club thing where these little catalogs, the teacher would give out these little catalogs and you could order yeah. books I and remember you could that. remember those. Yeah. I do. And, and they still have them apparently. And you could yeah. also order these um, little posters and things. And I remember ordering these, um, these posters of like a, I don't know, a rabbit or something that some like really well-trained adult artist had drawn, you know, painted in oil paints or something kind of, I don't know, like Albrecht Dürer style or something. And I remember getting these posters back, you know, a few weeks later or something and thinking to myself, wow, I can't paint like that. And I somehow thought that I should be able to make an animal, you know, draw or paint an animal that well, like spontaneously. (laughs) And so by seventh grade and here, my parents put me in all these after school art classes and stuff. I grew up, you know, privileged enough that I got to take classes like that. And I was treated as like, you know, gifted in art, but I remember judging myself really harshly. Fourth grade. Yeah, fourth grade. And by seventh grade, I was in, I remember I was in one of these after school art classes. And I think it was a class, it was like an adult class. And here I was 13 years old in an adult art class. And we were supposed to go outside into the courtyard and draw trees. And we came back inside and everybody put their drawing, it was like a charcoal drawing, put them out on the table. And I remember looking at my drawing and I just could not get my, it was a special thing where we were supposed to start at the root and go every, every stroke was supposed to start at the root and draw up through the trunk and out through the branches. Each stroke was supposed to be, you know, a new stroke down at the roots and up through the trunk and out through the branches. And my tree looked like a scribble (laughs) and all these other trees looked, I could, I could identify the actual trees out in the courtyard and I, as a 13 year old, was comparing myself to these adults who'd probably been drawing for longer than I'd been alive. And at, at that moment, I decided I am not an artist. Other people, they are the artists. And there were kids in my school who also were just very, very skilled. And I compared their style of drawing was also quite different from mine. And I compared what I did to what they did. And I quit. That was it. I didn't do art anymore. At 13. At 13, I quit. Out of the business. No more art That's business. it. Out of the business. No more art business. I'm not an business. artist. It is not for me. I am not an artist. For 15 years. Wow. Totally quit. Now, at the same time, my school at that time, I don't know that they do this anymore because I live in California. There's a thing called Proposition 13. They cut all this, 
music and all the art and everything out of the schools. But at that time, they had music in the schools. And in fourth grade, you got to pick an an orchestral instrument. And I picked the violin. So I got to borrow a violin from the school and every two times a week or something, there was this, a teacher who came into the multipurpose room and we got our little lessons. So I would walk down to the multipurpose room and learn my little thing. And then in seventh grade, I apparently wasn't good enough to be first violin, but they needed violas for the little, you know, chamber orchestra. So the, the teacher asked if I would be willing to switch to viola. I didn't even know what viola was, but I said, okay. So I switched to viola so I was first viola out of two violas in the entire school chamber orchestra. So I played viola until 10th grade. And the same thing happened. I compared myself to the other players. And, I, and, and also, I just wasn't passionate enough about classical music to keep at it. And my viola teacher also happened to die, which was a bit of a blow as well. And I quit music again for... I don't know how many years. So that was it. That was it for me. Well, then um, I actually did get into dance at age 16. And that just that became my creative thing. And I just dove into dance. That was it. Dance and academia was my life. I took a year off after high school. And I danced. I worked at the shopping center. And I danced like six hours a day. And then I did, um, I went to UC Berkeley for a year. And then I had um, friends from my high school who were all going to Juilliard. And I decided to audition for Juilliard. So I did, and I got in and I went to Juilliard for the year. But I got really badly injured. I developed a terrible case of Achilles tendonitis. And I ended up not being able to dance most of the year. And I was horribly bulimic and I was horribly depressed. And I ended up coming home over the summer and I was able to start dancing again. But then the uh, tendonitis came back with a vengeance and I ended up dropping out of Juilliard and coming back to UC Berkeley. And I spent five years on the quest for the miracle cure, but was not able to get back to dance. Finally gave up on that. Um, and so here I was not able to dance I wasn't an artist because I had decided that at age 13 and here I was, I really truly believed that I was a non creative person because I couldn't dance. That was my creative outlet, but I couldn't do it. And I had thought that I was going to be a dancer in choreography, but that was out of the question. That was my passion. Boom. I had lost it. I wasn't a creative person anymore. So I sort of threw myself into academia. Once I graduated from college, I had no idea what to do with myself. I spent a couple of years, teaching nursery school, doing random things, but I couldn't, I didn't feel like I could really, um, I don't know, get a real job because that would take up prime dancing hours. And I was on the quest for the miracle cure still, still. And I thought that at any minute I might be able to start dancing intensively again, which I of course didn't end up doing. Well, finally I was able to just let go of the dream of becoming a dancer. And I thought, well, now what am I going to do? Oh, I know I'll go back to school because that's all I really knew. So I went to talk to my honors thesis advisor and she said, well, you're really into popular culture. Uh, I'd gotten my degree in social science, really essentially feminist theory. I was really interested in gender. She said, why don't you go to Birmingham? And I said, Alabama. And she said, no, England. The University of Birmingham is where cultural studies started as a discipline. 
I knew nothing about that. And I thought, well, I can't go to England. That's crazy. I'm, you know, I have this boyfriend, we're really serious, but we'd actually been having kind of a hard time. So I thought, actually, why don't I go to England? <laughs> so that's what I ended up doing. I went to England for the year and I got a, ma- a one-year master's degree. How brilliant. It'll make me look like a very desirable PhD candidate. I brought all my PhD applications with me, but could not get myself to fill them out. Every time I'd pull them out of the envelope, I would start to shake and cry. So I gave up on that. Well, now what do I do? Here I had my life all planned out. I was going to become a professor, this nice prestigious job. Now that's gone. Now what am I going to do? Well, I kind of finished out that year, came back to, to write my master's dissertation back in California was back together with this boyfriend who we were on again, off again, the year that I was sort of in England, but not in England because I kept coming home during the breaks. We got engaged and I planned this wedding, which now that I look back, I realized was that was my first creative act as an adult. I didn't know it at the time, but that is really what was going on. And every single vendor that I talked to, and it was really me planning the wedding because my soon-to-be mother-in-law was dying of Lou Gehrig's disease at the time. And my soon-to-be now ex-husband, speaking from present time, really didn't want to have a wedding. So I was the one, and I really did. I was a bit of a bridezilla. Um, So I was the one who was really doing all the planning. And every vendor that I talked to, the florist, the caterer, the... um, the ketubah artist, we had a Jewish wedding, and there's a document that's a traditional part of every Jewish wedding ceremony called a ketubah. Uh, the invitation lady, to every single person we talked to, I would think to myself, gee, if only I knew how to uh, cook, I could be a caterer. If only I knew how to take photos, I could be a wedding photographer. If only I knew how to arrange flowers, I could be a florist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If only I knew how to do calligraphy, and art, I could be a ketubah artist. But too bad for me, I don't know how to do any of those things. So the wedding happened, the wedding's over, and now it's the summer. And I've planned the wedding. I have no more excuses. Now what do I do with my life? So I thought for to myself, you know, okay, maybe I'll try to get a job in publishing. I sort of kind of tried to get a job. Maybe I applied to two jobs, didn't get any of the jobs. Well, it's not really publishing I'm interested in. It's writing. I'll be a writer. I always got good grades on my essays in college and graduate school. It's what a brilliant idea. Except that as soon as I tried to actually write something, I choked. Because when, you know, brilliant prose didn't fly spontaneously from the tips of my fingertips, the gremlins in my head convinced me that I sucked because I had, you know, cut back to fourth grade. I had this idea in my head that I had to be, you know, instantaneously brilliant, that I had to be born that way. So I started to procrastinate. I started to do everything I could to procrastinate. And guess what I did? I started making arts and crafts as one of my forms of procrastination. Now, I didn't think that that it was art what I was doing. Oh, God, no, because of course, I wasn't an artist. But one of the things that I started doing was, first of all, we had these leftovers from the wedding, these um, 
glass votive candles that had been little wedding favors. And so I thought, well, I'll wrap those in some color, um, you know, decorative paper to give them as gifts to my friends over the holidays. So I went to the art store and I bought some decorative paper with little inclusions in them, like little grass and petals and things like that. And I felt like such a fraud stepping in an art store, like the art police were going to come escort me out the door or something. Ridiculous, of course. And so that was fun, gluing paper around the little glass votives. And then I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting what would happen if I cut some holes in the paper before gluing the paper around the glass votives? It would make like little luminaria. But, yeah, and these papers were huge, by the way. I bought these big sheets of paper because that's what was available at the art store. But I didn't want to ruin this paper that I'd bought. So instead of using the pretty paper that I bought, I used the craft paper and I cut some little leaf shapes with, I didn't have an exacto blade. So I used a paring knife from the <laughs> kitchen, which is really painful on my finger. <laughs> and sure enough, it looked really cool. And I loved that process. It was really fun. Now, when I had been planning the wedding, we actually commissioned an artist to make our ketubah, our Jewish marriage contract. And we talked to about six different artists in this process of finding the right one. And the first artist we talked to incorporated paper cutting in her work. We didn't go with her because she was really expensive, but I loved the paper cutting. And I was really bummed that we didn't get a ketubah with paper cutting. I felt this lack of paper cutting after the wedding. <laughs> and so when I did that little bit of paper cutting on that little votive, I got very excited and I went to the library and I got some books on paper cutting and I started doing paper cutting. I went back to the art store feeling terribly guilty about spending $5 to buy an X-Acto knife. And I started doing all this paper cutting and I spent hours. I could sit for like six hours at a time. I was in my twenties. I can't do that anymore. But at the time I could sit for six hours. I would look up and suddenly realize, oh my God, it's dark outside. How long have I been doing this? You know, we're... I was trying to write and I would sit for 15 minutes and think, oh my God, it must be hours have passed when only 15 minutes had passed. So I decided to take a hint from that. And I thought this writing thing is not working. Clearly I'm not supposed to be a writer. Maybe I'm supposed to follow this other path. I made all these paper cuts. I took them in to get framed at the art store and the art store people said, wow, this is amazing. You're an incredible artist. My parents wanted to be, me to make paper cuts for them. My friends wanted me, wanted to pay me to make paper cuts for them. I got my paper cuts in, into some art shows. It was amazing. So, and I thought to myself, well, I can't imagine that paper cuts on them, their own would, you know, that I would be able to create a business from that. You know, I had this little business side going inside my brain but if I learned how to do calligraphy, then maybe I could turn this into a business. Maybe I could do, I don't know, address envelopes, fill in certificates, and maybe eventually I could become a ketubah artist. So that's what I did. And it was very, you know, sort of slow and organic. 
I really knew nothing about building a business. But within, let's see, this was 90, end of 94. By 96, I think I had my first Ketuba job. And I took every job I could get at the time, any job that came my way. And two and a half years later, no, let's see, I was only married for about four and a half years. And suddenly I was getting divorced and I had to make this business like really pay the bills. So I had this sort of hobby business. It was paying for my conferences and my classes and my art supplies of which I was buying a lot. And now I really had to pay the bills. So now everything I made had to bring in money and it stopped being fun. So I had started to see myself as an artist, which took a couple of years. Now art started to be just a job. So I became really, um, really pretty shut down. So I went from being shut down, uh, rediscovered my creativity. Then I went to being shut down again and walking around my little apartment after the divorce saying, I, I wish I could get back to making art for me again. I wish I could get back to making art for me again. I wish I had time to make art for me. What was really going on was that I was mired in perfectionist paralysis and the comparison trap and all of those I'm not good enough gremlins had me completely stuck. And that went on for about a decade until 2010 was around then when, um, okay, so here's what happened. (laughs) So at that time I was living with a man who I thought was my life partner and I was, um, my, my little business had grown sort of organically, because I really knew nothing about business. And I had built up a line of Ketuba prints by this point. And that had gone really well. I really didn't know what I was doing. But people had discovered them, I built a website. And 2007 was my best year. And I was on track to hit six figures was going great. And then we all know what happens. 2008 happened. And everything tanked and I was just completely thrown for a loop because I really didn't know how to run a business and everything had just happened organically and I panicked and instead of doing what a smart person would do and like learning how to run a business, I threw a bunch of money at the problem in a mass panic and all I succeeded in doing was getting myself in debt. So here I am cut to 2010 February of 2010, I'm massively in debt, totally stressed out. I've gone through all of my savings. This man who I thought was my life partner is living with me. And, um, and I, meanwhile, I'm digging into the internet to try and figure out like, how do I dig myself out of this hole? Um, and all of the internet gurus, marketing gurus say things like, you know, get your clients into a state of urgency to get them to buy and things like that. I'm in conversations with a bunch of potential clients, but nobody's handing over their credit card. My mortgage payment is due and I have no savings. I am in a really bad situation. And two things happen in quick succession. Um, 
the first thing is my, I'm finally in conversation with a client who they are, they are about to buy not just a ketubah, but a ketubah and a Quaker marriage certificate and a set of matching invitations, which I've, I've designed a full set of invitations and a whole, but I've built up, I've built up a whole line of stuff and over the you know previous several years. I get on the phone with them. The bride is about to hand over her credit card. And she says, you know, I just have to talk to my fiance one more time. And I'm just like, oh my God, my mortgage is due on Friday. Ah. <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, all the gurus say sense of urgency, you know, create a sense of urgency. So stupidly I say, sure, no problem. But if you're ready to buy right now, I will throw in a set of Ginsu knives. I don't actually say Ginsu knives, but you know, sort of the equivalent, which is makes absolutely no sense. I have, you know, I've spent weeks courting this couple. So for me to do that is just so slimy, right? So of course she gets off the phone very quickly and I know what's coming. Of course, later that evening, she sends me an email and says that our conversation made her feel very uncomfortable and she and her fiance have decided to go elsewhere. She felt betrayed. Of course she did. Of course she did. And, you know, (laughs) I mean, it was the stupidest thing ever. Now, if their purchase would have more than paid my mortgage, if I had just had the patience and they would have paid probably within a day or two. And I would have been able to pay my mortgage. Instead, I had a massive breakdown and my boyfriend had no idea what to do with me. I was so desperate. I ended up going to my parents. They were able to help me pay my mortgage and I confessed to them what was happening. And I mean, it was a disaster. I hit total rock bottom. Then a week later, my boyfriend (laughs) took me on a walk and said, Melissa, I love you. And I think and hope that we will be together forever. But (laughs) I found an apartment and I'm moving out and I'm signing the lease on Monday. And no, I'm not trying to break up with you, but I just need my space. And I said, well, that's not how somebody who really wants to be a life partner acts and I'm breaking up with you. So, you know, as the universe basically took out a two by four and walloped me upside the head and I was in the gutter. That was my hit bottom moment. And it made me realize, oh, I don't have to live my life the way I've been living it. I am not happy. And I don't have to be just a Ketuba artist for the rest of my life. I actually was also a jazz singer by this point because I had started making music to procrastinate because art wasn't... (laughs) wasn't my procrastination device anymore, but I don't have to be a ketubah artist and a jazz singer at night anymore. I can do whatever I want. So what is it that I want? And I spent the next few months figuring that out. And I figured out that for me, my pillars of happiness are expressing my creativity and I'm a passion pluralite. I am a Renaissance soul. I, I have lots of creative express, you know, creative expressions. It doesn't really matter which, which one is active at the, at this moment, but I have to be expressing myself creatively and making a difference. Those are my pillars of happiness. And I hadn't been, I hadn't been like those pillars had not been active 
So just figuring that out was like getting my feet back on the path. It's not, it's like, it's not arriving. It's the, it's the journey that, you know, being on that path, that's what makes for happiness for most people. We'll be right back to our conversation after this quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect, RCAT, FreshBooks, and Gusto. If you work with specifications in your firm, you probably have come across outdated manufacturer specifications with confusing notes, products that no longer exist, or maybe even companies that no longer exist. Maybe you even pay for those specifications. Stop, stop the madness. There's a better way to find our manufacturer specifications for your project documentation. It's our friends at RCAT, RCAT.com. RCAT is the number one most used website for finding building product information, and it has a free library of over 1,400 up-to-date accurate specifications. RCAT's specs are written by professionals based on manufacturer data. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find the right specifications for your project and quickly download them into multiple formats for free. Google, Google can't do that. You don't even have to register at RCAT. Just go over to RCAT.com, that's A-R-C-A-T.com, and start building better content today. Do you remember when you started your firm? It was no small feat. It wasn't easy. It took a lot of late nights, early mornings, and maybe even the occasional all-nighter. Bottom line, you've been insanely busy ever since. So why not make things a little bit easier? Well, our friends at FreshBooks have the solution. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners like us. It's simple, it's intuitive, and it keeps you way more organized than the dusty shoebox filled with crumpled receipts. Create and send professional-looking invoices in 30 seconds. And then get them paid two times faster with automated online payments. That's my favorite part of FreshBooks. File expenses even quicker and keep them perfectly organized for tax time. The best part? FreshBooks grows alongside your business. So you'll always have the tools that you need when you need them without ever having to learn the ins and outs of accounting. Join the 24 million people who've used FreshBooks. Try it for free for 30 days. It's free. No catch, no credit card. It's free for 30 days. Go check it out at entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. That's entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. And when you're there, let them know that we sent you Entree Architect. Pop that into the how did you hear about us section and let, us, let them know that Entree Architect sent you. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially when you're a small business. You don't have time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. And old school payroll providers, they just aren't built for the way that we work as small firm architects. Gusto is making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. Modern technology does the heavy lifting, so it's easy for us to get it right. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and a great service for your team. And to help support the Entree Architect podcast, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. Sign up today and you'll get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to entrearchitect.com slash Gusto and claim your free three months of payroll processing 
for free three months at entrearchitect.com slash gusto. RCAP, fresh books and gusto. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them. Thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. How, how did you how did you figure that out? Because listening to your story, it sounds like from very very early on, from first grade on, that this this theme of perfectionism just kept getting in the way of you pursuing your passion. Yes. And you got to the point where you finally found something that you were good at. You accepted that you were a creative and that you were an artist. Um, and then that fell apart and it, everything else crumbled. What got you past that? What made you discover that happiness was part of the equation? Oh, my God. The perfectionism thing has been a bugaboo for me, like you said, for, from very, very early on. And letting go of perfectionism has been a really, it's been so many years of allowing myself to let go of perfectionism and forgiving myself for being human. And it's the journey of self-compassion. I call myself now an intentional imperfectionist. And that does not mean like, I'm just going to be sloppy all the time. It's, 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 it's different from that. Mm -hmm. What it, it, it's, it is identical to self-compassion. Intentional imperfectionism is identical to self-compassion. And it's been so hard for me to embrace that. But what I can say is that it's, the grass is so much greener on this side. And I wish that I could go back to my younger self, the self of my teens and 20s, and convince her to start then, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but on the you, other hand, do like... You, do you think if you did that, that you would have ever discovered what you discovered today? Well, that's what I was going to go say. Th- I, I think I had to go through yeah. the horrible pain <laughs> that I went through. I, I also feel like the gifts that I have for the world are a product of the traumas that I went through. So, I mean, now that I'm where I am now, I've been there, I've been through it. So I, I don't have to go through it again, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> and I have the gifts that I have now because I went through what I went through. So I wouldn't trade it, but, but I can say that because I don't think I have to go through it again. I yeah. wouldn't wish it on anybody. So if you did go back to that younger self, would you have tried to change the way things were or would you inform her that it's all going to be okay? You're going to have to go through some of these bumpy times oh and you're going to have gosh. to get through some of this. But when you get to the other side, it's going to be worth all that that anxiety and pain. Wow, that's a really fraught question. I don't I don't know how to answer that question. What what I can say is that I want to help other people not have to go through what I went through. Yeah. 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 The reason I ask is because there are people at both ends listening, right? There, there's, there's some young, young kids out there who are going through what you went through, right? That they're struggling and things are, are not going the way they want, the way they want it to go. And that there's people at the other end who have been through it and recognize that, 
you have to go through some of that stuff to get to who you become, right? It's part of your journey. And so to, to give some uh, clarity to those who are dealing with it now, that it's going to be okay, right? You need to go through this, the pains and the struggles and the sacrifices of growing up and living through life to get to the, to the place where you belong, right? And sometimes that journey is short and it's easy, and sometimes it's long and it's hard. Um, but ultimately, you end up where you belong if you keep pushing forward. And, and even you, I mean, you went through all these different steps, all these, these challenges of becoming an artist and then saying that you're not an artist and becoming a dancer and then dancing not working out. And all these barriers kept happening to you. And at the time, it probably was the end of the world. Right? Yeah. It, was, it was over. But today, you look back and all of those things happened to get you to where you are today to be able to teach others how to get through those things that you went through. Yeah. Yeah. So true. It's funny what you say, like for some people it's the journey is shorter and easier and for other people it's longer and harder or whatever. I feel like I'm, I'm sort of on the long, hard path Mm -hmm. in so many ways. Like my husband, my, my current husband, the, the keeper husband, I went on 57 first dates over a two and a half year period while I was watching other people meet their, you know, right person after date number two or date number one or something like that. And it was maddening. Like, why do I have to go on 57? And here's the irony. My husband was probably date number 12, but it took me two and a half years to see him as a contender because I was so I was looking over him. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't see him that way because I'm on the long, hard path for some reason. Uh, and, and, <laughs> but but all all of those all of those steps along the way are teaching you how to how to how to get to where you belong. Yeah. But it's also it's it. And from what what I've learned about you and the things with with your book and your guideposts that now you're showing others how to get through that long, hard journey because you've, you've become an expert in the long, hard journey, <laughs> right? And so now you can show others how to, how to do that, which also becomes part of your journey, right? It makes it, your yeah. journey easier because the next hurdle that you encounter, you can view from a different perspective that, wait a minute, that's just another mountain that I have to climb to get to where I belong. It's not, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. And I actually feel like that's part of what I'm here for is to share what I'm going through, what I've been through and also what I'm going through while I'm going through it. Because, you know, so often we see all these people, you know, online, it's so easy to see everybody's shiny highlight roll, right. And real. And, and I have no, I'm, I'm very hard on my sleeve. I share what's going on while I'm going through it. So I share all the time the gremlins that I'm struggling with so that people realize that they're not the only one who's dealing with this, oh my God, I'm not good enough. Oh my God, I've got these comparison comparison trap gremlins or these perfectionist gremlins or whatever. So I share, like on Instagram, I share whatever it is I'm, I've been, you know, I've made, you know, a doodle or a drawing or a sketch note or something like that. And I talk about like, oh, my gremlins told me that this thing sucked. And people are like, really? They did? 
I thought I was the only one who dealt with that. Or I can't believe you, your gremlins told you that because I think it looks great or, you know, whatever it is so that they know that they're not the only one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And I think a lot of architects are in that same position. You know, oh, a lot I'm of sure. architects expect that they should be at a certain point in their life or should be able to design certain things or, uh, you know, build businesses the way they expect to build them immediately. And there's a process and there's, there's a journey that you have to go through. And that journey, every journey includes mountains. And some of those mountains are easy and some of those mountains are really tall and hard and difficult. And uh, you just have to keep pushing forward. I would imagine it must be in some ways, especially treacherous or, or pressure filled for architects because what you create, what you're building, what you're designing is designed to last. Yeah. You know, it like go away, right? it doesn't go away. Like I, I do, you know, I might do a doodle on a three by five card or something that I could just toss in a recycle bin <laughs> or I might make something musical, which is completely ephemeral. You know, I mean, maybe I put it up online so it can sort of live in the, uh, out on the internet or something like that, but it's not made out of concrete and steel or, you know, whatever. Yeah. 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 And so you, in your book, the creative sandbox way, um, it teaches us how to use play, right. To, to, to get to, to where we need to go. Yeah. So what I figured out when, when I wasn't doing my art and for me at the time it was specifically visual art, but it it applies for any kind of creativity that you're doing for your own fulfillment. Um, although the principles in the book are actually applied more than that. But for me at the time, as I said, it was for my art. I realized that the reason why I was not able to, to get to my creativity was that I needed to get access it through play. That what my creative spirit really needed was to let loose and make messes and be like a little four year old kid playing in a sandbox. And that's, that's where the the whole creative sandbox concept came for, came from. It was, it's a metaphor. It's like, imagine a little kid playing in a sandbox. What are they doing? They're grabbing a bucket, they're grabbing a truck, they're grabbing a shovel, they're grabbing some water, and they're exploring. They're like, hey, what would happen if I put some sand in this bucket and turn it upside down? You know, they're just letting themselves go nuts and go wild and experiment. They're little scientists, you know, and that's what I needed to do. And so I literally, some of the early, earliest, earliest posts on my blog, Living a Creative Life, which is at my, my website, melissadinwitty.com, the, the original domain, which still dire- redirects, is livingacreativelife.com. The, er, some of the earliest posts were, I have to create some little quote-unquote rules for myself to get me in that mind space of a little four-year-old kid. And so one of the first rules was there is no wrong. And that's still my first guidepost, guidepost number one of the t- my 10 guideposts, which form the backbone of my book. And one of the other early rules was uh, it doesn't matter if you like it or hate it. When you're in that space of just cre- that creative sandbox mind space, when you're, you know, making some art or, you know, writing or whatever it is for me at the time as visual art. It doesn't matter if you like it or hate it. All that matters is that you're having fun. 
Now, the pithier version is guidepost number two, which is think process, not product. But really, what that really means is it doesn't matter if you like it or hate it. All that matters is that you're having fun. Right. The process <laughs> is the important part. The, 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 yeah. crea- the creativity of the process. Exactly. And I remember when I first got back to making art for me, I had these three canvases that I had bought months before, maybe a year or two before. They were still wrapped in plastic because I'd never pulled them out. I'd never worked on stretch canvas before. And I finally cut open the the plastic and I pulled out a canvas and I thought, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just going to pull out some inks. And I don't even, I, I don't know if I had acrylics and tubes or what I, what I had, but I just started smearing things around. And I think I had some fabric that I was collaging on there and the thing looked God awful. It looked, it looked so disgusting, but I was just, I was like a little kid and I remember the sensation in my body. It was like I was kind of levitating and my, my skin was kind of buzzing. It felt so good, like almost like I was high, you know, Mm -hmm. and I looked at the, the canvas afterwards and I thought, this is so incredibly ugly. I can't even stand it. But thankfully I didn't fixate on that. I, I was able to hold on to that sensation and think, I want that. I want more of that. Mm-hmm. So that's guidepost number two, think process, not product. And guidepost number three is think quantity, not quality. This is counterintuitive to a lot of people because, you know, we want to be pleased by what we make, right? Of course we do. (laughs) We want to end up with things that please us and that please we were proud of that we can show other people and say, Hey, look, I made this right. Especially for architects. Oh my God. (laughs) If you're working with a client, that's, that's critical. There's some expectations, right? But in the creative sandbox, we're Mm -hmm. not making for other people. We're just making for our own enjoyment. And I find this guidepost easiest to wrap my head around if I think in terms of photography. If you've ever had a headshot done or if you've had wedding photos taken or something, you know that your photographer, you know, take might take a thousand photos and not all thousand photos are going to be good, right? They might, they might hold their finger down on that shutter and take a whole bunch of photos and while you're moving or something. And some of them are going to catch you with your eyes closed and your mouth open or something like that. But if they take enough photos, there's going going to be a handful of them that are really good, right? So that's the concept of think quantity, not quality. And also, if you are just constantly creating, you're going to learn from that experience. So you're going to get better from the process of creating more. And as you do more, you're going to get better. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even even as an architect, as you're creating the, the schematics, the designs, and you're, you're doing the sketches, it's sketch after sketch after sketch That's after right. sketch after sketch. And eventually, those sketches get better and better and better. And they, they lead to those big ideas that you would have never gotten to. Exactly. If you don't go through the process of the quantity to get to the quality. Exactly. You're never going to get any better if you don't do anything. So that's think quantity, not quality. And then number four is think tiny and daily. When I 
first got back to making art for me, I made a commitment to myself. I was actually doing interviews with with a bunch of artists and creators. I had um, an online product that I created called the Thriving Artist Project, where I was interviewing artists and creatives of all stripes to see how they were making their living or pursuing, you know, not quite making their living yet, but working towards making their living from their creative thing. Cause I wanted to know how are, how are other people doing it? And I interviewed an artist named Michelle Taberge who lives across the San Francisco Bay from me. And she's, she is a gallery exhibiting fine artist and she mentors other artists who want gallery exhibiting fine art careers. And just like everybody else, these fine artists struggle with resistance and getting to their art. And Michelle tells her mentees, if you can't put 15 minutes a day into your art, you're making an excuse. So I'm interviewing Michelle. It was February 1st, 2011. And I felt myself getting hot (laughs) and you know, defensive. And I thought, wow, she really nailed something in me. So by the end of that interview, I had made a commitment to myself that I was going to spend 15 minutes a day making art. At least I could spend more than that if I wanted, but I was going to put at least 15 minutes a day. It was February. It was a short month. I could do it. 28 days, right? That changed my life. So every day that month, I did it for 15 minutes. I realized a couple of things, a few things. First thing I realized is, wow, 15 minutes is enough to get into a state of flow. Who knew? I thought I needed like three hours. No, actually, I can I can lose track of time yeah. with just 15 minutes. The second thing I learned from that experiment was it works better for me to put in my creative time early in the day, because if I put it off, then I'm like setting a timer right before I go to bed. I'm really cranky. It, it just doesn't work as well. So I started doing my creative thing. First thing. Now I actually doodle in bed <laughs> to get myself going in the morning. It puts me in a good mood. It sets a good tone for the day. So that was a total life changer. So that's part of your morning process. So you wake it's, up and you pull your sketchbook off the table and doodle for 15 minutes. It's part. Yeah, I don't yeah. actually set a timer or anything anymore. Right. I, I figure any amount counts, even if it's two yeah. minutes, even if it's one mark, just doing something because that like getting past the starting friction, mm-hmm. that's that's the big thing. Right. Yeah. But at the time I was doing, when I, when I back on in February of uh, 2011, I had these big sheets of paper on my drafting table behind me and I would just put color on them for a couple of days. And then I would tear them into smaller sheets of paper and then I would add some calligraphy to them. And I made, I think it was 150 finished pieces of art that year, which was more art than I had. They were small pieces of art, but they were finished pieces of art, more art than I had made in the previous decade. Hmm. All from 15 minutes a day. Yeah. And in 15 minutes, you can't be perfect. Y- yeah. Right. And so, yeah. so that's, that's part of it, right? Is it is absolutely that, that the, that the perfectionism that kept getting in your way is you've discovered 
that these are these are ways around that. These are ways to yes. to fight that gremlin of perfectionism. Yeah. If if and the whole the whole idea of a sandbox is it's impossible to be perfect in a sandbox. Yeah. Sandboxes oh my gosh. are inherently <laughs> imperfect, right? They're just made out of grains of sand. So you yeah. can't do anything perfectly in a sandbox. Yeah. Yeah. So I the love other, that. The other thing that works really well for me is as a Ketuba artist, I had worked very meticulously to a design and, you know, it was all mapped out and that was my, you know, that was my MO and I swung the opposite direction and work. Now I work very improvisationally. And that's another way that I dance with the gremlins. Mm-hmm. They get very confused with <laughs> improvisation. They, they just don't know what to do about it yeah, because I'm that. not trying to match a platonic ideal in my head, which I can never do. Right. My right. hands, my body can never make happen this idea in my head. But if I don't have an idea in my head that I'm trying to match, then the gremlins just they wa- sort of wander off in a daze. Right. Yeah. So yeah. So they so the gremlins have your map, right? And so <laughs> and so they know where you're going. But if you go take off in a different direction, they have the map. They're going following the map, and you're off going having some fun somewhere else. And they're right. halfway down the road. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So number that's number four. Think tiny and daily. Number five. This is the one I turn to most frequently, probably, and that's just start anywhere. I use that all the time in writing, in visual art, in music, in, you know, we so often think, but I don't know where to start. I don't know where to start. We're so afraid of the blank page because we're afraid of messing it up, right? How many pristine, beautiful journals, you know, have people bought and they think, oh, I don't want to ruin it. I'll wait until I'm better before I touch this journal. I'm not good enough. I'll, I'll be, I'll wait until I'm a better artist, a better writer, a better calligrapher. You know, the way to deal with fear of the blank page is to make it unblank. How do you make it unblank? You just make a mark. Yeah. So start, just start. And with, when I'm writing, I just start and, you know, a lot of writers talk about like the shitty first draft. Mm -hmm. Sorry if I've, you know, made you click the explicit checkbox or whatever. Um, the crappy first draft, whatever, you know, often the first three or four paragraphs get completely deleted or end up being used for some other article or something. You got to crank those out in order to get to the the next thing. Or as I like to say, um, we need the crap to fertilize the good stuff. That's right. Yeah. That's just the way it is. So that's number five. And then number six is when in doubt, ask what if, or just at any time, ask what if that is my favorite place to be. That's the space of creativity. That's the space of the child. You know, what would happen if? So that's, that's the question behind every dream, right? Yes, absolutely. What what if we did this? What if this is possible? Exactly. I, I use that often when I talk about planning, when I do you know business planning and life planning, is to talk about the what if, to create that vision, that, that vision narrative of if there were no barriers, if there was nothing standing in your way, what would you do? What would you be? What would you create? What if there were no barriers? 
Yeah. And then, and then you create that, that idea and that vision and that story in your head. And then you figure out how to get there and you just start. Like you said, you yeah. just start. You just move in that direction. And then you just keep one step at a time moving in that direction. Yes. That, that's, that's it. Then seven, seven is take the riskier path. Now, this one started as not nearly as pithy. It started as when you get to that place, when the piece isn't done, you know it's not done, you know it needs something, but you're afraid to add to it because you're afraid you're going to ruin it. Go ahead and ruin it. (laughs) What's the worst thing that's going to happen? You'll learn something. How many pieces do I have sitting in a shelf, sitting in a drawer, sitting on a shelf, whatever, because I was afraid to ruin them. So I just never finished them, right? So what do you end up having? You have a warehouse filled with UFOs, unfinished objects. And that doesn't do anybody any good. It's so much better to ruin the darn thing And then you learn something from it. And then maybe you end up with something even more interesting or you end up with a ruined piece. And so you tear it up or you, you know, paint over it or whatever. And you learn something from it. Often though, you end up with something way more interesting than you would have if you would ended up, you know, following your original plan. So go ahead and ruin it. So that's the pithy version is take the riskier path. Do the scary thing. So that's seven. And then eight is dismiss all gremlins because the creative sandbox is a gremlin free zone. Now here's the thing. The challenge is that gremlins (laughs) don't listen. (laughs) That's why they're gremlins. That's why they're gremlins. They are going to appear no matter what you do. They're going to show up. They're going to keep showing up. So our job is to notice them when they appear and when they do send them off to get a pedicure. That's what I like to do. You might send them off to go get a pizza or, you know, play football or whatever it is. I mean, here's the thing. They're trying to protect you. They're just doing it in a way that is profoundly unhelpful. Right. But they're just trying to keep us safe. They're trying to keep you safely in your comfort zone. That's their job. But once you understand what they are and that they're, you know, wearing these disguises as the voice of truth, the voice of wisdom, the voice of reason, their disguises, you know, once you start to be able to identify them and realize that every time they show up holding their hand up saying, stop, do not go there. And you can realize, oh, that actually means yes, go there. When a gremlin says, holds up a red stop, you know, stoplight, it actually means green, go this way. It will feel scary, but that means you're growing, right? So that's eight, dismiss all gremlins. Nine is spring the comparison trap, which is actually a very particular type of gremlin, but I added it because the comparison trap is, my most, it's my worst gremlin. Like that's the one that I deal with the most. So it has its own guidepost. And how do we, so wait, I want to just go, go sit on that one for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So even today, even Mm -hmm. going through your journey, 
and finding finding the answer the answers or you're working to continue to find the answers um that you you still have that comparison trap um barrier that, oh that, my God, that still gosh. stops you on a daily basis oh my god all the time i was just at a conference the international forum of visual practitioners i've been doing learning this skill of graphic recording and doing a lot of sketch noting and things like that. So I went to this conference and I was surrounded by all of these. It's, it's both graphic facilitators and graphic recorders and people who use live, do live graphic, any, anything involving, um, you know, visual practitioners of all, of all kinds. Right. And so every session was being, graphic recorded by somebody, by a couple of people who volunteered, I had signed up in advance saying, yes, I'd be happy to, to volunteer to do that. Thinking I'll put myself out there and take a risk. When I saw the skill level of the people who were recording at the conference, I was like, there is no way I'm putting myself out there. I was feeling so small. And so like, what am I doing? Who do I think I am? So what did you do? What did you do in that situation? Um, I, I, I did, I kept sketchnoting in my own private little notebook and I told myself, you know, the, in the reality is if I were to get a graphic recording job for a client, they would not be comparing my work to my hero's works work, you know, they wouldn't be doing a side by side. They would be looking at my work and, and, and thinking of it in terms of how it supports what they need. And they would think it's amazing for, you know, how it supports what they need. And I was, you know, continuing to tell myself all of those things. And I was also looking at the work of people who don't have amazing art chops and thinking, oh, see, I'm okay. See, right, it's okay. Right, yeah. And I was telling myself all of these nasty things that I'm that I'm hearing in my head, those are gremlins. It's okay. And they were still affecting me. But what was so interesting is I went to another conference the week right after that, the Applied Improvisation Network World Conference. It was very convenient because the first the International Forum of Visual Practitioners was in New Jersey, Montclair, New Jersey, and then Applied Improvisation Network was in New York. So they were right almost next door to each other. So that worked out really well. And I was sketchnoting the Applied Improvisation Network the whole time as well. And I took snapshots of all those pages and I shared them in the Facebook page for AIN. And I went from feeling really small about my skills at IFVP. And then uh, you should have seen all the comments in the Facebook group for AIN. Oh my God, Melissa, you're so amazing, dude. You're so <laughs> talented. I can't believe you're so talented. You've inspired me to start sketching. Now that those comments were the ones that made me feel the best, of course, because yeah. I want to make a difference, right? Right. So many people said, you've inspired me to start sketchnoting. So anyway, yes, to answer your question, yes, I deal with gremlins and the comparison, the comparison trap gremlin is absolutely my worst. I deal with it all the time, but I dance with it. I know what it is now. Yeah. So it still affects me deeply, 
but I, for the most part, am able to keep going even though it's there. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's all part of what we were talking about before. It's all part of going through the journey to get to where you are now to recognize yeah. that those are gremlins and what those are and how to overcome them and and the the fuel of others you know that that feedback of others is important for me that's a huge piece of keeping me going when i feel yeah. that comparison trap and that inferior inferior inferiority complex you know it's it's when others say thank you what you're doing is making a difference in my life yeah. that just fuels my tank and i just keep going right through yeah. the barrier yeah and so like 2 years ago if somebody had asked me to graphic record, uh, you know, do a professional get you know, professional gig, I might not have had the confidence to say yes. I also didn't, might not have had the skill or felt I had the skill to say yeah. yes. Now I would say, I would say absolutely. And I might think to myself, wow, so-and-so is so much more skilled than I am. However, I, I also recognize that my, artistic chops may not be the same at the same level as so-and-so, but right. that doesn't mean that the value that I bring is less because artistic chops don't bring more value to the table when graphic recording. They look might look prettier, but that's not what brings the value. It depends on what the client is looking for. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and we're also, we're on, and you talked about quantity over quality as well. That, that ties into it as well. We're all on a timeline, right? Yeah. I, I, my daughter is a, she's 12 and she's a, she's a swimmer. That's her thing. She swims. Um, and she's very good at it. And when she struggles and she sees somebody else who's better than her, who's faster than her, um, that she wants to swim like, I say, well, you're on a timeline. The reason they're faster is they have more hours in the pool. They've spent more hours in the pool than you. Right. And so eventually, if you keep swimming and you keep swimming hours in the pool, someday you're going to be at that level. And we're all on a timeline. Yeah. So the people that we're comparing, our, comparing ourselves with, those, those amazing masters of what we do, they are only masters because they've been through the timeline. They've, they've, and some of them have excelled through that timeline. And some of them have taken longer. But they've gone through the timeline and they're in a different place on that timeline than you are. Yeah. And eventually, if you keep going forward and keep putting in the hours and keep doing quantity over quality, you will get there. You'll, you'll spend enough hours in the pool in order to, to become the master. Absolutely. Absolutely true. And the, 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 like the style that I bring has some advantages. This is something that I have only recently come to see. I have a more sort of um, naive artistic style, as they say, more like stick figures on the spectrum as opposed to photorealistic, mm -hmm. for lack of a better descriptive term, on the spectrum. And the advantage of the more stick figure on the spectrum style is that it is a, more accessible for yeah. clients, it's they're more likely to approach the board and add something themselves mm -hmm. than somebody who has a more sort of realistic style on the spectrum. Right. That they don't want to mess it up. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So there's there's certain advantages that I have only recently come to see. Yeah. Yeah. 
So anyway, so that's um, nine spring the comparison trap. And 10 is probably the most important of all. And that is treat yourself with compassion. And that ties into my golden formula, which is self-awareness plus self-compassion equals the key to everything good. That's, that's pretty deep. Say that again. Self-awareness plus self-compassion equals the key to everything good. So know who you are, be good to yourself, and everything that comes to you will be good. Yeah, basically, know, understand what works for you, mm-hmm. what doesn't work for you, your needs, your desires, who you are. And self-compassion, really, Dr. Kristen Neff is the world's most uh, foremost researcher on self-compassion. And she defines self-compassion as having three components. The first one is mindfulness. It's really being able to, it's, you know, being in the present and being able to separate yourself from the stress, the distress. And um, so there's mindfulness and um, an awareness of common humanity. So an awareness that whatever suffering you're experiencing right now, it's not pathology. It's other people have gone through the same suffering. It's human. It's, Mm -hmm. it's a human thing. You're not alone. And the third piece is self-kindness, which is really critical. And there's lots of ways that you can be kind to yourself. You can, you can actually, you know, gently rub your arm. You can take a nap. You know, there's just so many, so many different ways that you can be treat yourself kindly. And we tend to not do that. You know, we tend to treat ourselves worse than we would ever treat our worst enemy. Right. And the way we speak to ourselves, right? So just intentionally treating yourself the way you would treat a beloved child, you know, taking that on this has been a journey that I've been on for several years now, and it has made such a difference. I've always had pretty good self-awareness, but taking on the self-compassion piece and adding that to it has made such a difference in my life. I highly, highly recommend it. And I really do. The more I practice this, the more I believe it really is the key to everything good. It becomes the armor against the gremlins. Absolutely. And I highly recommend Kristen Neff's book, Self-Compassion, it's when I read that it, it really made such a big difference in my life. Great. We'll, we'll link that up with your book as well on the show notes. Um, Melissa, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you the final question that I ask everybody else. Um, what is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Well, I, I, it doesn't sound like a piece of business advice, but I really think developing a self-compassion practice is key. I, I, personally, like I have been putting my physical self-care primary in my life. As I've gotten older, I've developed some um, physical challenges that have made me realize that I can't, I just can't like put my body second anymore. It has to come first. So like when I need a nap, 
I take a nap. So, you know, that's part of the self-compassion practice for me now. So I would say, you know, figure out what your self-compassion practice is going to be and start prioritizing that. So self-compassion needs to be more intentional than it is yes. spontaneous. Absolutely. Make it's us not, intentional self-compassion practice. It's not something that's just, you know, every once in a while, like, oh, I need to be nice to myself. It's <laughs> at this time of day, every day, I'm going to do this or this or this. It's an, it's an, it's an intentional practice. It's an intentional practice. And, and, and I see it as more than just like a once a day check-in. I see it as a like an all day, every day. How do I treat myself at all times of the day? How do I talk to myself at all times? And if, and if I just beat myself up, then I get to be kind to myself about the fact that I just beat myself up. I don't have to beat myself up about the fact that I beat myself up because that wouldn't be self-compassionate, right? I just beat myself up so I can say, oh, sweetie, it's okay. That's okay that I, that you just beat yourself up. I, I, I get to be gentle with myself about that. Everybody does that sometimes, you know, that would be a self-compassionate way to treat myself about beating myself up. You know, like if I just said, you're so stupid, I can't believe you did that. You're so stupid which I do, I just did that last night, then the a self-compassionate response would be, oh, it's okay. Everybody does that sometimes. Yeah. How, you know, I still love you. You know, something, just something simple like that. Yeah. But intentionally, it's not. It's intentionally. Not, yeah. It's much like mindfulness. I mean, mindfulness, there's meditation, which, you know, you schedule, okay, I'm going to do meditation for this amount of time every day at this moment. But mindfulness is being aware of your present state all the time. You know, right. And so it, it's similar with self-compassion. It's not like meditation. It's more like mindfulness. It's, yes. it's this thing that you need to intentionally acknowledge. And it's, and it's a habit you need to build. It's not something that just, okay, I'm just going to do this. It's something that you have to figure out how you do it. You practice it like you practice mindfulness. Um, you practice self-care and self self um, what did you call it? Self-compassion. Self-compassion. That's yeah. a great analogy. It's because meditation is a great practice designed to develop mindfulness. Right. I mean, that's one of the, I mean, it's designed for many things, right? The meditation can help us with many things. And one of the things that meditation can help with is self-compassion and mindfulness or some of the, some of the things that meditation can help with are mindfulness and self-compassion which we want to build more of in our life, in our, throughout our day. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, this, this is, it's, it's actually a much longer episode than I usually do because I really, I'm, I find what you're talking about fascinating. You know, I find this whole process, um, of, of going through the, different steps that it takes to find your creativity and to break through the perfectionism and, and the comparison trap, all these things that get in the way of, of us doing our best work and, and finding our true com, com, uh, creative self. Um, I find it so fascinating to talk about it. I could talk about it all day. <laughs> I, I wish we could have talked about each guidepost longer. Um, but the, the name of the book, if anybody wants to go find the book and, and dive deeper into it, it's The Creative Sandbox Way, Your 
path to a full color life. We'll have a link to it on the show notes. So you can just go to entrearchitect.com slash episode 288. And you could get the, uh, the link to that and all the other things as well that we talked about. Um, you can also find Melissa at her website, melissadinwitty.com. It's D-I-N-W-I-D-D-I-E. So melissadinwitty.com. Uh, we'll have a, sh- a link to that as well. Um, you can find her on social media, on LinkedIn and Instagram. On LinkedIn, it's you can search her up for uh, Melissa Dinwitty. Uh, on Instagram, it's a creative life with underscores between each word, a underscore creative underscore life. Uh, we'll have a link to that as well. Um, reach out to Melissa and say that you heard about her here at Entree Architect Podcast. Share your story with her um, and uh, and let her know that uh, our conversation that we just had was helpful in some way because I think that it really has been, to many of us, it has been for me because I suffer with the same comparison traps, the same perfectionism, the same things. All the things that you talked about are things that have gotten in my way over the years and one of the things that I just keep doing is just keep moving forward with, with um, I, I use the word certainty, that I know that there's a, the, uh, there's a place that I belong, that there's a purpose for me. And if I just keep moving forward, I just keep getting closer and closer to that. Um, and, and that's very similar to the things that you talked about, Melissa. So uh, I thank you very much for coming here and, and opening up and sharing your story uh, and some, some guideposts for us to use along our journey so thank you for being here at Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun, Mark. Wow, that, that was a long one, but but oh, so worth it. I know many of us struggle with some of the issues Melissa shared with us today. And I hope this episode will help you break through and live that creative life that you really want. If you did find value here, please consider sharing this episode with a friend. This is episode 288. And that is also the link to share, entrearchitect.com slash episode 288. Please do that. I appreciate that. And join me starting on October 1st, October 1st, 2019, for our third interactive workshop of 2019, The Integrated Life, a planning and productivity workshop for small firm architects. I know this is something that you're looking for because you told me that this is something you're looking for, a workshop, a five-weeks five weeks of training and group coaching where I will work with you directly to help you develop a powerful plan for your personal and business success and integrated life. As well, this is the key, as well, on top of all of that planning, we're also going to talk about an effective productivity system that will help you execute that plan with success in 2020. So not only what do you need to do, but how are you going to get it done? That's what we're going to do in five weeks from October 1st through the end of October. So it's essentially five weeks through October, um, five weeks of training, the integrated life, a planning and productivity workshop for small firm architects. The time to plan for next year is right now. You know that it's important. You know that it needs to be done to get to where you want to go. Don't go another year of living in the what ifs. Turn your what ifs into how-tos, okay? Let's get this thing done together. Learn more and register right now at entrearchitect.com slash life. That's entrearchitect.com slash life. It'll share everything that you need to know about the program, and it will get you registered and signed up for October 1st. And if you are an entrepreneur architect who runs and owns your own small firm, then you, my friend, are an entree architect, and I encourage you to go build a better business. Come join us 
at the workshop so you can be a better architect because architects can change the world. Love, learn, share what you know. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that, (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together.
Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.